By a show of hands, have you ever walked into one of those ancient artifacts known as a bookstore? Has anyone ever been in a bookstore? Yes. Yeah, it's like an artifact from a different civilization. Maybe you've been to like a Barnes and Noble, you know, one of these places where you drive up and you park your car and you go in and you just look at books. Or maybe you've been to Amazon.com, which everyone has, and you've been looking over the books and there's a religion section. And in the religion section, there's a book that's highlighted. It's on the corner of newly discovered information about Jesus. And you're like, no, I've never done that. I have a life, Chris. <laughs> and uh, so you haven't done that, but I have. And uh, maybe you have an uncle who overshares on Facebook and he's posting his new findings about Jesus. And actually, Jesus is not God. It's a big, uh, it's a big conspiracy, new information this just in. And maybe you've clicked on the article and you rolled your eyes at your uncle or you thought it was very interesting. But if you've ever seen these books or read these articles, what you usually find is that the article of Jesus, uh, talking about Jesus being God, was usually just an invention of the Catholic Church three centuries ago. It was done by Constantine, who was there to consolidate power for the Catholic Church. But more than just these articles or books, uh, when we may see in our general culture, um, the nature of God is disputed. The nature of God is disputed in our culture. See, we live in a pluralistic culture. Now, what do I mean by that? Living in a pluralistic culture means that it is preferred that we all believe that different religions are equally valid, even if those religions actually believe different things. And we're encouraged to believe that nobody's completely right and nobody's completely wrong. And and, uh, and we become a tolerant society that affirms each other's differences. And so as a result, and it is popular, especially in Los Angeles, to passionately argue uh, that the, to believe in Jesus is God is actually a form of cultural intolerance. And in some circles, uh, to say that Jesus is God is so intolerant and it's so offensive that to believe such a thing, it's not too different than a terrorist who might strap a bomb to himself and go into a crowded restaurant. It's very offensive to some. So my question is this, how do we in the church begin to handle the question, is Jesus God? There's this information, you look at everything on all the books, they say, well, there's new information out. And if you look at culture, they say, well, we need to question that. Well, is Jesus God? Well, actually, it's actually a lot harder than we think because there's a problem of definitions. The problem of asking, is Jesus God, is that it's not just attacked by all sides in literature or what we think in popular culture. It's no longer obvious what we mean by Jesus and what we mean by God. If I were to sit down with each of you and I was to sit down and ask you, who is God or who is Jesus? Even in a room full of people who got dressed this morning and you came to church, bless your hearts. You showed up to church today. You got dressed. You came in on Sunday morning. Even if I asked you, who is Jesus and who is God in a room this size, I would get a variety of different answers. And everyday people like us, as well as scholars And uh, who try to talk about Jesus or when we look at Jesus, we end up seeing our own faces reflected back into it, our own attitudes and sometimes even our own politics. Just do a simple search on Amazon or on Google and you'll find out that there's a lot of different kinds of Jesuses. There's Jesus, the CEO. There's Jesus, the life coach. There's Jesus, the philosopher. There's Jesus, the Jewish theologian. Here's a real one. Here's a real one you can find on the internet. Jesus, the transgender terminator. That's a real one. Jesus, the feminist. Jesus, the traffic cop. Jesus, the reformer. Jesus, the community organizer. 
And of course, we have the American Jesus, which supports all of our military efforts around the at the border and overseas. And or we think of Jesus as our own personal Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. And Jesus just wants to be friends with me. Well, the point is this. With all of today's opinions and today's so-called experts, it's not evident what we mean by Jesus or what we mean by God when we talk about him. And it's certainly not evident when we talk about other things beyond Jesus and God, because we have thousands of different definitions. There's thousands of different definitions about Jesus. There's thousands of different definitions about God. Now, a wonderful approach to this question of like, uh, is Jesus God, was actually suggested by Tom Wright. Sometimes he goes by N.T. Wright, but for the sake of this discussion, Tom Wright. Tom Wright was one of the world's foremost New Testament scholars, and he's currently the Bishop of Durham in the Church of England. And Tom Wright used to be a college chaplain. And as a college chaplain, one of his roles and responsibilities was to meet with incoming freshmen each year for just a few minutes to say hello and yada, yada, yada. And so Tom Wright would meet with each student, and many of the students were happy to see them, but a number of them said, well, you know, you won't be seeing much of me because I don't believe in God. And what Wright did was really interesting. He developed a stock response to freshman students. And the stock response was, oh, that's interesting. Which, which God don't you believe in? And that is a great response because when someone says, I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist, a wonderful response to them is to say, okay, interesting, which God don't you believe in? And when Tom would say this, it would cause the freshman student to be off guard because they thought everyone assumed that everyone knew what God meant. So they would mumble off some phrases about somebody who is up in the sky that spies on them and is ready to punish them if they don't follow them and he's going to send them all to hell or they're spying on them so that they don't do badly. They don't believe in some supersized genie with a big white beard that doesn't care about children starving in Africa or people involved in sex trafficking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so after listening to these students, what Wright would say is, well, I'm not surprised you don't believe in that God. I don't believe in that God either. And at this point, the students would be like, they had heard that there's a lot of bishops or a lot of chaplains at Oxford that were considered to be closet atheists. And he would say, listen, listen, listen. I'm not a closet atheist here. I believe in God, but I believe in one God. And that is the God is the God who is revealed through Jesus of Nazareth. He was a Jewish man who lived in Galilee in the first century, and he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Now let's talk about that God who reveals himself in Jesus and whether or not we could believe in such a God. And that's what we're talking about today. I'm going to be continuing our Advent series, and we've been calling it the thrill of hope. And the thrill of hope is important because hope is important. It renews us. It gives us strength. And as I mentioned to you before, the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means approach or arrival. And this entire series that we're doing now until December 23rd comes from one single verse in Isaiah 9, 6. And it gives four titles to the Messiah that would uh, come. And one of those titles is Mighty God. And today we're going to be talking about Jesus as God, Mighty God. Will you pray with me? And then let's take a look. God, you are mighty and you are here. And so we invite you to do a work in us. God, we want to know who you are. We don't want to know some fake God or some God that's been projected onto us by by any kind of culture, American culture, or even Christian, uh, pseudo-Christian culture. We want to know the real God through Jesus. And so I ask God that you would help me to speak as I should, and that you would 
lead people to yourself today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, in our quest to understand God, is Jesus God, a great way to understand this is to look at what the Bible says about him. So, is Jesus God? What does the Bible say? Well, we read in Isaiah 9, 6, it says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And just uh, a little advertisement, last week we covered Wonderful Counselor, and today we're covering Mighty God, so you guessed it, next week is Everlasting Father, and then the final week of the series will be Prince of Peace. So here's some background information about this verse in Isaiah 9-6. For a number of chapters, Isaiah has been writing to the people of Israel because their political leaders had uh, led them astray, and he is also confronting them about their idols. They believed in different idols. And as a result, the entire nation found themselves in a spiritual fog, and there was darkness over the land everywhere you went. But Isaiah promises new hope, and that new hope would be on the horizon, and that their hope would be renewed. God is going to send a deliverer to the people, the Messiah, who will free the people, and they will, he will represent the activities of God. The human Messiah will be mighty God. And friends, I want you to get excited about this. This, this is the wonder of Christmas. The wonder of Christmas is not you and me, being nice to each other for just a couple of weeks. Although I think you should be nice to me as much as possible. It is not, but that is not the wonder of Christmas. But I will wonder if you're not nice to me in January. So just, just make a pact. Just be nice to each other forever. But like it is not the miracle of Christmas. The wonder of Christmas is not, in fact, feeling guilty when you're outside of the Culver City Target. And there's a lady in the wheelchair ringing the bell to ask for your spare change. That is not the miracle of Christmas either. The miracle of Christmas is not an excuse to buy everything on our Christmas list and everything on everyone else's Christmas list. It's not to decorate our houses with lights. And it's not, uh, the miracle of Christmas is not eating more Christmas ham than any other human being should eat in the world. The wonder of Christmas is that God became a human being and entered this world through the womb of the Virgin Mary, period. Now, for the, the theological term for God becoming human is incarnation, which comes from the Latin. And you'll see this on your screen here. It says incarnation equals incarne, uh, means in flesh, which is kind of where we get the word carne athara. And so uh, <laughs> that was not in the script. So, so yeah, so, you know, God in carne athara. Okay, so, so God became human flesh. This is an awesome mystery. This is a great wonder that God came in the flesh. This Huge God of the universe becomes a tiny little human baby. That, my friends, is the miracle of Christmas. And if you dig down into the roots of Christianity, you will not find a discussion about Jesus being a good man or a great man or the best man. At the roots of Christianity, you will find that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is God. Now, one of my favorite quotes uh, from one of my favorite Christian authors, C.S. Lewis, once wrote this. He said... What is most interesting, I should do a British accent, but I'm not going to. We'll leave that to other uh, people. Okay, so what is most interesting, what we must remember is that the people who were saying that Jesus is Lord and God are the least likely people on the face of the planet to have said it if it wasn't true. What is he saying here? 
Well, the men and women who are running around the Roman Empire saying that Jesus was God were Jewish people, were the Jews. The, the writers, the majority of the writers in the New Testament, they were Jewish. And if there ever was a people on the face of the earth who were ferociously monotheistic, who believed in one God, who were united as one group by culture and history and frame of mind, who would never believe that God would take on a human flesh, it was the Jewish people. And so, yet you have all these Jewish people going around saying that Jesus is Lord. God came down. God came down as a man. And so when we look at the New Testament, and the New Testament is the second half of, if you're new to church, the New Testament is the second half of the Bible, the, the period of the time that it was written after Jesus rose from the dead. So if we look at the New Testament, um, it's important to remember that most of those writers were Jewish and they were proclaiming that Jesus was God, that Jesus came down as a human person. So what do we do here? We should consider how the Bible refers to Jesus' deity, which was written by Jewish people who are unlikely to say that unless they really believed it to be true. You could turn to Romans 9, who was written by Paul, the apostle, who is a Jewish Pharisee. And he says that Jesus is the Messiah who is God over all. You could turn to Colossians 2, where it says Christ is the fullness of the deity. You could turn to uh, Colossians, or you could turn to uh, Titus 2, where it says, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or you could turn to Second Peter 1, where it says, Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, again. And uh, beyond this, considering uh, what, what's going on with what the Bible says about him, you can consider the titles that were given to Jesus. Consider Jesus' titles. There are so many titles and names that are given to Jesus. And I highlighted some of those at the end of my talk last week. Uh, and by the way, if you ever want, if you ever miss a week and you would love to hear what I had to say the previous week, we put all those on the website and you can hear my nasally voice for 40 minutes. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> little advertisement. So there's so many. So uh, consider this one in Matthew 1. He's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us in the person of Jesus. Uh, the Messiah is called the Lord, our righteous savior. We see that in Jeremiah 21. We see Jesus is called the Lord of glory in first Corinthians two. We see Jesus is called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in revelation 19. He is the King of the Jews. He is the Lord of Lords. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who is the one who is to come. He's everything. And you could, and in fact, determine whether Jesus is God based on his titles. Or you could consider the actions of Jesus. Consider the actions of Jesus. And when we read stories about Jesus in the Bible, we can read that Jesus did a number of things that first century Jewish rabbis, if you don't know what a rabbi is, it means a teacher. If a first century Jewish rabbi thought this about you, it was important. Uh, they, he did a number of things that first century Jewish rabbis said that only things that could only be done by God. For example, Jesus walked on water. This is something Jewish rabbis said could only be done by God. Uh, Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins. Again, this is something that the people believe that only God could do. Uh, Jesus claimed to have full authority over the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? And he was able to revise Sabbath laws. Well, he was able to, he actually presented himself as a lawgiver. Again, something that was only reserved for God. Now, some of you might protest and you might say, do we have to get into all this metaphysical stuff about being Jesus God? Can't we just 
follow the teachings of Jesus. Can't we just agree that this simple Jewish rabbi had some good things to say about how to be good ethical people? And then they'll say something like this. They'll say, why don't we just be Sermon on the Mount people? Let's just be Sermon on the Mount people. Let's forget all this theological hibbity-jibbity. And let's just know about Jesus being God. Why don't we agree just to do the Sermon on the Mount? Well, okay, then let's, let's dive into that. Let's consider the teachings of Jesus. Consider Jesus' teachings. Now, when somebody says, can't we just be Sermon on the Mount people? Can't we just do the ethical parts of the Bible and that's enough and that'll be good enough? I want to say back to them, have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? Have you ever read it? And if you haven't, it is one of the most famous sermons that Jesus ever gave on a hillside. And it can be found in the book of Matthew in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And, and when someone says, hey, we really don't need, really need to consider or get so serious about whether Jesus is God, uh, we can just be Sermon on the Mount people. Uh, the, well, this is a simplistic and frankly, it's an incorrect understanding of Jesus's teachings. And it just doesn't work. Just look at what Jesus says about the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. It says in uh, Matthew 7, he says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. What is most striking, and here's what you need to know. What is most striking about the Sermon on the Mount is not the teachings of Jesus. It is, in fact, that Jesus calls attention to himself. Jesus just doesn't offer great ethical teaching about how to be a good people, teaching about how to order a society. His teaching continually brings attention back to himself. And in the moment when he spoke these words, there was a huge astonishment in the crowd. And look what it says in verse 29. It says, because he taught as one who had authority, not as one of the teachers of the law. You know, see, when you were a scribe or a Pharisee or a rabbi in this time, if you were an expert, uh, you were not just an expert in general, but you were an expert in the law, you were also an expert in interpreting the law. So, for example, if somebody asked if it was proper to dry a shirt that got wet on the Sabbath, you would ask a scribe or a Pharisee uh, about what would do, how that would work, and they would quote this rabbi or that rabbi, and they would give you an answer. But Jesus never did that. He continually said, you have heard it was said, but I tell you, look at this with me. Look at, look in Matthew five. He says, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So let me update this for you so you can understand how revolutionary Jesus teaching was. Let's say that the Supreme Court decides to revisit the law regarding the right to an abortion. Okay, so the Supreme Court schedules oral arguments and the Solicitor General for the United States argues for the prohibition or restrictions on the right to abortion. And an attorney from Planned Parenthood argues for the continuation of the law as it presently stands. Now, the typical approach uh, in the Supreme Court is the attorney's take turns giving an oral argument, and they would cite various authorities. So the Planned Parenthood attorney would stand up, and they would cite the right to the right to privacy. They would go back to Griswold in Connecticut, or maybe they would look at the Eisentot versus Baird, or Roe v. Wade, or the Doe versus Bolton uh, case, and on and on and on. But say that that's what, the, that's what the Planned Parenthood attorney did. Say the Solicitor General of the United States got up, and all the Solicitor General said was, you have heard what Planned Parenthood has said, 
But I tell you, abortion is immoral. And then the solicitor ambassador or the solicitor general doesn't cite any authorities. He doesn't add, he or she doesn't add anything else. He doesn't list any past judicial precedents. He just says, I tell you, now listen to me. This would absolutely shock the government. They would say he's claiming quite a bit of authority for himself, isn't he? And that's what Jesus is doing here. The Sermon on the Mount is not some teaching that's just, in, that's just kind of good ethical teaching. It's about the authority of the teacher. And all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, from beginning to end, Jesus continually is calling attention not to like some great ideal, but he's calling attention to himself. He expects his followers, for example, he expects his followers to suffer for his namesake. He expects that the, the disciples will be persecuted just like prophets in the Old Testament were persecuted. He says, you're going to suffer because you're faithful to me. He's comparing his role to that of God. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he said that even he would be the judge of the world and that one day we're going to stand before him and he's going to judge the actions of everybody. And the bottom line is, is that in every single one of Jesus' statements, all of his claims, all of his actions, all of his parables, the symbolism that is at work in everything that he's doing, the entire New Testament is shouting that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Jewish people is at work saving and delivering the world through Jesus of Nazareth, the first century rabbi that we see in the pages of the Bible. And then, um, thank you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> this side's doing better this week. You know, you're allowed to, we're allowed to get involved here. I mean, you know, yeah, there we go. Thank you. Thank you. Do I have a, yep. All right. We can do that. Like, you know, I know that like, uh, we're in Santa Monica and there's a, there, there tends to be a, uh, dare I say a whiteness that falls over the crowd. Like, yes. Okay. okay. So yes, but we can get involved and I would appreciate that. And as this church grows, I think it's going to get a little bit more rowdy. So like you can be an early adapter. Come on, let's go. Come on. Come on. Come on, come on, come on. Yeah. Now, 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 now just wait for me to say something. Okay. So, <laughs> or we could just be generally excited anyway, but I wanted to, I need, I felt like I needed to say that last week and I didn't, but you can get involved. We can be involved here. Um, but stay in your seats. Okay. So. Is Jesus God? Well, the entire New Testament says so. This, uh, the message that, uh, is found in every statement. It's found in every teaching, in every action, in every symbol. But again, coming back to Tom Wright's statement that we talked about at the beginning, we don't just start with this abstract view of God, some definition, some uh, bad definition that's been given to us by society, some philosophical statement about God, and then we try to shove that into Jesus. What we do here is we listen to what Tom was saying. Tom is quite correct. We actually need to start with Jesus and then let Jesus define for us what God is like. So let me give you an illustration. It says in uh, John chapter 1, verse 18, it says this. It says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. You could say that Jesus is the display of God, that he's the explanation of God, that Jesus has made the invisible God visible to everybody. Now, I want to tell you a story. Back in 1944, there was a man named Tom Torrance. And Tom later became a theology professor in Scotland. Uh, and, uh, but at this time, he was working for the British Army. 
And he was something called a stretcher bearer. Now, a stretcher bearer was exactly what you would think. They, you know, they carry the stretchers. And uh, um, there, uh, there was a, there was a, a British uh, attack on a small village in Italy. And at the break of dawn, uh, he came upon a young soldier named Private Phillips. Uh, he was mortally wounded. He was, di- he was dying in a ditch. He was, on, he was in his last breaths. And he had very little time to live. And so as Tom Torrance knelt down, the soldier said to him, Father, is God really like Jesus? And Tom Torrance wrote, I assured him that he was. The only God that there is, the God who came to us is in Jesus. Showed, us his, showed his face to us and poured out his love to us is exactly like Jesus, our Savior. And then after hearing that, the soldier said, I'm ready to die, which he died. And then Professor Torrance wrote this. He says, as I prayed and commended him to the Lord Jesus, he passed away. And this incident left an indelible impression upon me, an indelible impression upon me. I kept wondering afterwards what the churches have done to drive some wedge, some kind of wedge between God and Jesus. There is no hidden God. No God that Jesus didn't disclose, but only the one Lord God who came, who became incarnate in Christ. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. God is exactly like Jesus. And when you die as a Christian, it is into the hands of God who is exactly like Jesus that we release our spirits. So who is this God? That we find in Jesus. Well, one of the things is that we see that God, we we find a God who is self-revealing. Look at John 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God who reveals himself in Jesus is self-revealing and expressing God. He's not hidden. He doesn't just reveal his will. Only in written form, like in the Islam's Quran. He's not a silent reality that can be discovered when we discipline ourselves in meditation uh, beyond all rationality in some form of Buddhism. He's not some mystery that's hidden in nature as we check the alignment of the planets or we do some sort of spiritualized yoga. It is in the nature of the Christian God to not remain aloof. It is the character of God who came down to not remain silent. God doesn't force us to guess what he's like. God speaks by showing us what he is like in Jesus. Now, let me give you a silly illustration. Now, in our church, there's a couple of people you may know Scott and Taylor Kellogg. Now, Scott and Taylor just added a new member to their family, and I think we have a picture of it. They got a new dog named Hamilton. Uh, yeah, it's so adorable. I'm not, I'm not crying over it. I'm just clearing my eyes. But anyway, there's a pic of, we have a pic of Hamilton. They're so lovely. It's such, such a cute dog. It's such a cute story and everything. Now, I want you to imagine if Scott and Taylor came home one night and Hamilton greeted them at the door, not by wagging his tail, But what if he spoke to Scott and Taylor? Whoa. And uh, Hamilton, the dog, looked at them and said, hey, how was your day? Has the traffic been slow because of all the rain? Okay. So Scott and Taylor, their relationship with their dog, no matter how close it is right now, no matter how much they think they understand their dog's feelings and, uh, no, and how much their dog understands their feelings. Their relationship with their dog 
if their dog spoke, would exponentially change. And our relationship with God is radically changed because God speaks. <laughs> Love you, man. This guy's over. And so here's the deal. Here's the deal. Like a lot of uh, a lot of people believe that the world's religions, uh, Christianity included, are just a bunch of blind people groping around in the dark trying to figure out uh, who this elusive God is. Uh, a lot of people uh, believe that God forces us to play hide and go seek with Him, uh, and that Christianity is just an attempt to kind of make sense of things that can't be made sense of. Uh, that He's silent and He's hiding, and we're just trying to figure it all out. But this first phrase that we read about in John's gospel, he blows this idea right out of the water. He clearly proclaims that we are not forced to grope around in the dark for God who is hiding. Instead, our God speaks in and through the Messiah, which is Jesus. God expresses himself. God reveals himself. We human beings don't have to grope around in the dark. There's an answer. He talks to us and the Bible teaches us that we are the ones who are groping around and we're the ones who are lost and God is the one who is seeking us out. That's what God is like. That's why we can be confident when we face whatever, because God speaks and he doesn't just remain silent and makes us find answers on our own. God speaks in and through Jesus. And so friend, if you're struggling with your faith, I get it. I've struggled with my faith too. If you're a person that struggles with your faith, if you're a person who really struggles to believe, why not ask Jesus to reveal God to you? Why not do it? Why not do it? Just do it. Here's a, here, I'll go even a step further. Here's how you do it. You pray. You say, you pray in your mind. You pray in your heart. Wherever you are or whatever you're doing, you just say a simple prayer to God. It can be in your car when you're stuck in traffic. It can be laying in bed at night. It can be in this room right now. It can be right in this room right now. And here's how you do this. You just say a simple prayer. You say, Jesus, reveal God to me. Show me that you're there. Speak to me and show me a sign. And here's what I know. And here's what I've experienced for myself with God. I know that I know that I know this is the kind of prayer God likes to answer. God loves to answer this kind of prayer. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're going to do, no matter how you're living now, he loves you and he loves to show himself to you. And he will. He'll do it. But you've got to ask him. Just ask him. Just ask him. I double dare you. Even maybe when we sing the song at the end. Try it. See what happens. And over time, he'll show you himself. It's just the way it works. So who is this God we find in Jesus? Well, we see that he's not only self-revealing. We see that he's self-sacrificing. In Romans 5, 8, it says this. You can see it on your screens. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about this with me. What is your definition of love? How do you know if somebody really loves you? Is love just words? Well, I know some of you ladies have been sweet-talked by some men over the years who told you that they loved you. Uh, but love is more than words, isn't it? Love is also actions. Don't tell me that you love me. Show me that you love me. Show me that you love me and you care about me. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> I once heard this pastor uh, say, uh, he's like, he, he had been married for a few years. His name is Chris as well. That's my name. And uh, he, he asked his wife, he's like, hey, 
uh, you have two, you have, he was kind of like direct with her. He's like, hey, you've got two options. Option number one, I take you to a fancy dinner. Option number two, I scrub the bathtub. Which one do you want? And she's like, I'll take the bathtub. <laughs> and like all the people who are around him at the time, they're like, that's true love right there. <laughs> How does someone show you that they love you? Well, the best way that you show someone that you love them is you sacrifice. Or they make a sacrifice for you. A person sacrifices joy. Or no, they don't sacrifice joy. They sacrifice time. They might sacrifice joy. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just didn't mean to say that. Anyway. So they might sacrifice time by visiting you in the hospital or listening to you when you're hurting or sitting with you when you're grieving. A person might sacrifice money by the giving of gifts or helping you when you have a financial need. A person might sacrifice sleep as mothers and fathers do when they sit up with their baby or when their child is small and their baby and their child is sick um, or their child is afraid of some mysterious noise in the other room. Uh, Not a real story for me at all this week. Anyway, so a parent might sacrifice a job promotion because it will take time away from his or her child. And more than anything else, love is demonstrated most when a person sacrifices their what? Their life. When they give everything, including their own life, to protect you or to rescue you. And so it is with Jesus. In Jesus we have a demonstration of God's love. And it wasn't just a man hanging on the cross. It was God. Jesus as God hung on the cross for our sins. And Jesus as God had the nails go through his hands before each of us. So who is this God that we find in Jesus? Well, he's not only self-revealing and self-sacrificing. We also see he's sympathetic. Look at what it says in Hebrews 4. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And it is because God came down in flesh that the Christian God, in the Christian God, we can be unique. We see that he uniquely sympathizes with men and women in a way that no other God can. Christians are claiming something that no other religion claims, that our God didn't just stay up in the safe confines of heaven in a remote way, but he took on human pain and he took on human weakness. Instead, our God took on all the experiences of this world. He took on our nature. He lived our lives. He endured our temptations. He experienced sorrows. He felt our hurts. He bore our sin. He died our deaths. And there is nothing in our human experience that God has not himself experienced through Jesus. Now, there's this wonderful story. Um, It's called the long silence. And maybe some of you have heard it. And, uh, it's a, where a jury of men and women who, had, who lived at different times in history decide that they are going to judge God. And in the story, one female witness steps up and says, how can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? And she pulls up her sleeve and she shows a tattooed number of a Nazi concentration camp. And he says, I endured terror. I endured beating. I endured torture. And I endured death. And then... From another part of the room, uh, a black teenager steps forward and lowers his collar and says, how can God judge us? How can he do this? And around his neck, you see an ugly rope burn. And the result from being lynched 
where there was no crime at all other than being black and being in the South and talking to a white woman during the Jim Crow South. And witness after witness stepped forward. Each one of them had a complaint against God for the evil and for the suffering that God had permitted in this world. And one person cries, how lucky are you, God, that you get to live in heaven and enjoy everything in all of its sweetness and all of its rightness and all the light where there's no weeping or hunger or thirst. What do you know about what we have endured as Jews and as blacks or as a Japanese child in Hiroshima or as a disabled and paralyzed man? Before you are qualified to be our judge, before you can say anything to us, you have to go through what we went through. And so the jury pronounced his verdict. God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. And the jury foreman reads this verdict here. He said, the the, the jury foreman reads this. It says, let him be born a Jew. Let Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think of him out of his mind. Let him, be, let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him never get married and know of the joy of having children. Let him face false charges. Be tried by a prejudiced jury and be convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be beaten. Let him be tortured. And at the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. And after the jury foreman read this verdict, there was a stunned silence in the room. Because nobody in the courtroom, and nobody in the courtroom uttered a word. Nobody moved. They all of a sudden knew that God had already served this sentence by becoming a human being. You see, when we ask the question, does God understand me? Not as a scientist understands like a bug on a slide, but does God really understand me? But as someone who has lived my life, who has experienced my pain, who has endured my temptations, God says back to us, he says, I do understand you. He says, I'm the God who took on human flesh. I'm the God that you can know through Jesus of Nazareth. 